Amen. Amen. All right, let's go Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, everybody should be within arm's reach of one of those. Uh, so if uh, you don't have a Bible of your own, you like the physical type, that's, that's a good way to go. Uh, I know that it's paperback and the print's small, but it's a free Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, don't have one outside of this place. Man, we would absolutely love for you to take that one home. Uh, we believe that God uses his word in big ways, most notably to teach us about himself. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we think that we want you to know God, and that's the best place to find him. And so it would be a good thing to us for you to take a Bible home if you don't have one and start reading it. And so make that happen. You can figure it out. All right, uh, Judges chapter 13. So we're getting pretty deep now into uh, a series that we've been diving in deeply for the last few months. We started this the week after. Easter. It's mid-July now, uh, and so uh, we've been diving deeply into this series that we've been calling The Story of God, or to be more thematic, The Story of God, right? All right? And so um, we've, we've had a good time with it, I think, uh, and the premise, I believe, is actually pretty simple. Uh, you may not think so, but you're wrong, all right? Um, the premise is pretty simple, all right? Uh, we believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Uh, not just the New Testament stuff, not just the Messianic prophecies toward the end of the Old Testament. We believe the whole Bible is about Jesus. Yes, even the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Yes, even the story of Leah being the awkward and unwanted third wheel in a marriage. We believe that those stories are about Jesus. Now, Jesus is never explicitly mentioned in them. His name is never uttered in those stories, but he is most assuredly the star of those stories. And so if we read those stories correctly and all the others like it, we walk away from those stories, yeah, learning some things about their life and, and, and the details and circumstances that they lived in, but most importantly, we walk away from those stories loving and knowing more deeply who our God is and what he has done. All right? And so we've been asking, we've been uh, taking a slow walk through the lives of these major characters of the Old Testament, just rattle off the ones that you can think about right now. We've been taking a slow walk through their lives and asking the question, how does their life tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? All right? But here's the deal. We know uh, that that's a big question to ask. And so we've been breaking it up into four smaller questions in the hopes that those four questions will lead us to our, our, the answer of our bigger question. If you've been here for the whole time, you know the questions already. How was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? Thirdly, what did God do to redeem them? And then fourthly, how does their story preach the gospel? And so if we answer those four questions well, we position ourselves in such a way that answering the big story of God question is actually kind of easy. All right? it, it's no longer a difficult question to ask. Um, but here's the deal. We want to, after today, shut this series down for a few months. We're going to take a short break, all right? We've got some other things we're excited about we want to talk about for the summer. We've got a little mini-series planned. Uh, we've got a couple of one-offs sprinkled in there. And so we want to shut this series down and just take a little two-month, two-and-a-half-month, depending on how you count, break from our series, and we'll come back to it in mid-September. But how about we go out with a bang today? Does that sound good to you? Yeah, it sounds good to me. Face mic, that's what's happening. All right. Now, I, I want to shut our series down today before we go into our break by looking at what I think is one of the coolest characters in the Bible. And for the purpose of our series, definitely one of the cooler stories. All right? So who's our character today? Samson, the mighty strong man, right? Got him beating up a guy right there with a donkey's jawbone. All right. Let's give our guy some more profile. Another day, another judge. Same old story. 
lions and foxes and donkey jaws. Oh my. Nazarite found wanting. You ready to get into it? Question number one. How was Samson raised up? Judges chapter 13. So Samson's story begins uh, in chapter 13, incredibly similar to the way Gideon's story last week began. The, the whole theme for his life and the context that he lives in can be summarized in verse 1. And so let's read that together. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So in case you weren't here last week, uh, we spent our time learning about the life of Gideon and both he and our boy today, Samson, uh, are doing their thing, living their life within the greater context of the, the narrative of the book of Judges, right? And so if you've never read the book of Judges, what's it about? A three to four hundred year cycle of God's people picking up the sin habits of the, the neighboring people around them, the, the nations of people living in their land that they were commanded to drive out, but they failed to do so. They pick up the sin habits of those people. Those people end up enslaving God's people. They, God's people need to be rescued out of that slavery. And so God raises up a general uh, king type figure called a judge to rescue them out of slavery, and to bring judgment on that other wicked nation of people. They have peace for a little while, and then the cycle repeats itself. Pick up the sin habits, become enslaved, need to be rescued, a judge is raised. Peace for a little while, pick up the sin habits, become enslaved, need to be rescued, a judge is raised. And so what we're seeing here in chapter 13 is just Samson's turn in the story. Instead of Gideon and the Midianites like last week, this week it's Samson and the Philistines. The same old story over and over again. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord, notice it doesn't say an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. That's an understatement, but okay. Uh, I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and they, the angel of God came again to the woman, and she sat in the field, or as she sat in the field. Uh, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. Verse 12, And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? Call a little time out here. Notice, notice the trajectory of the sentence, right? He didn't say, 
if your words come true, how am I going to know this? He says, when your words come true, there's a level of trust here, right? When your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I, had, all that I commanded her, let her observe. And so after this, the story keeps going, and Manoah and his wife ask God, they don't know it's him, but they ask him to stick around and eat a meal with them, and God says, no, I'm not going to eat a meal, but how about you give a burnt offering instead? And so they prepare the burnt offering, and the Bible says that they realize that it was God himself, that they realize that it wasn't just some random angel, that it was God himself, when as they're giving this burnt offering, this angel ascends into the smoke of the fire up into heaven. And their response is that they're scared to death. Side note, anytime you see an encounter with an angel in the Bible between angel and man, fear is the appropriate response. When you're talking about the angel of the Lord, oh no, we're going to die. But God is gracious towards them. He doesn't kill them. In fact, he's come to give them an immeasurable blessing, hasn't he? And in verses 24 and 25, chapter 13 closes out by saying this, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. So, it's an interesting story. Somebody's phone's reading to him. <laughs> chapter and verse, there you go. Whose phone's reading? It's yours! <laughs> Man, I wish I read the Bible with that diva voice. That'd be great. No, uh, okay, so I'm going to talk loud until she gets that figured out. All right, so Samson is, is, is this incredible child of promise. His story begins that way, right? He's going to be a child of promise. God comes to them and says, you're going to have a boy, and he's going to do big things, right? And if you know your Bible well, you know that this is a story that happens over and over again in the Bible, right? More than just a handful of times. There's a couple who can't have kids. God wants to do something big. And so he picks the unlikely couple all right, to be the parents of this child of promise. All right? And he, he, like, he, he builds all this excitement in them. And, and this kid's going to do great things. And the kid's going to do big stuff before the Lord, right? And I'm sure his parents, they totally didn't feel the pressure of any of that. But not only is Samson a child of promise... The, the kid that never should have been. God also lines out to them that this kid is going to be a Nazarite. So, what in the world is a Nazarite? Well, in Numbers chapter 6, a chapter of the Bible that I'm sure for many of you is your favorite chapter ever. Why are you laughing? Somebody needs to make that their favorite chapter. In Numbers chapter 6, God is giving his law to his covenant people, and he kind of calls a timeout, and he lines out uh, a special group of people called the Nazarites, a special category of folks called the Nazarites. And the word Nazarite means the called out ones or the holy ones. So what's special about the Nazarites? Well, all of Israel's priests came from one tribe of, pe uh, one tribe of people. What tribe was that? The Levites, the tribe of Levi. To, to be a Levite was to be from the priestly tribe. And to, to be from some other tribe means that you weren't supposed to be a priest. You had another job to do for the community. All right? 
But the Nazarites were kind of a different deal. They, they were uh, a special pious group from other tribes, the non-Levite tribes, who kind of stood as holy spiritual lay leaders for their tribes and communities. Their job was to kind of be spiritual lay leaders in their little community and so that the Levites had their own job and then the Nazarites kind of came in and and did the local stuff. They weren't Levites, but they they were held to this higher standard. In fact, uh, they take a special vow to to not cut their hair, to uh, to abstain from eating or drinking anything associated with grapes, and then to also never touch a dead body. All right? And they would take that special vow, and it was kind of this extra special step of asceticism that the rest of God's people, the rest of Israel wasn't called to, uh, in order to point towards purity for the purpose of doing God's will. That's who the Levites, uh, the Nazarites were, not the Levites. That's who the Nazarites were. Some would take that vow for their whole life, live out the rest of their days that way. Some would take that vow for a season. In fact, Numbers chapter 6 actually lines out how to break that vow, how to end that time period of being a Nazarite. All right? And so, but when, no matter how long you played the role of Nazarite, them's the rules. No wine, no dead bodies, no haircuts. And so when the angel of the Lord pronounces the coming birth of Samson, he tells his parents that Samson is to be a Nazarite. Not, not just from birth, but from conception, he, he, he lines out that Samson's mom is supposed to start practicing this stuff. That Samson's to be a Nazarite from conception. And some of y'all who know Samson's story are already seeing some problems with this list of no-nos, aren't you? But let's go ahead and formally ask our next question. What made Samson a seemingly bad choice to play a major role in God's story? He was the worst Nazarite ever! absolutely terrible the worst Nazarite ever just awful man like we we don't have time to to tell his whole story but in chapter 14 so we closed out with the birth of Samson in chapter 13 chapter 14 opens up with Samson already a grown man and he's looking for a wife all right and so Samson decides that he wants to marry a Philistine girl and his parents object to it with reason Right? But Samson wants to marry her, and his response to them is, quote, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Anybody see some problems with that? Anybody think that that's going to go really, really well? Remember that when we're talking about the Philistines, we're not talking about a racial issue here. And I need to point that out because I personally know people who have looked at this text and said that that was the problem that Samson ran into. No. When we're talking about the Philistines, we're talking about a group of people who don't belong in their land right now. Who God commanded them generations before to drive out of the land and they failed to do so. And because they are still in the land, they are currently, not just in a season past, currently leading God's people to worship other false gods and literally enslaving them. But I'm sure that'll go well, right? When we're talking about the Philistines, we need to remember that this is going on during a time period where intermarrying with the pagan tribes around them was explicitly warned against for exactly this purpose. And Samson goes, but I wanna. 
And so the common theme that you'll pick up in the life of Samson, if you read it for yourself, is that he's always justifying and excusing whatever it was he already wanted to do. Even the blatantly sinful stuff. Over and over and over again, for it is right in my eyes. But his parents relent, the story goes on, and they work to arrange the marriage. And the story plays out that while they are making these arrangements, Samson gets attacked by a lion. And the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he killed the lion. In fact, actually the Bible says that he tore the lion apart. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that God made him super strong and he killed the lion, right? Now why do I point it out that way? I say it that way on purpose because we tend to read Samson's story backwards. We tend to read Samson's story backwards. Don't read Samson's story incorrectly. The incredible feats of strength that Samson does, the, the incredible feats of strength that we see from Samson in the Bible are not some ancient Near Eastern Superman story. They're not the, the Jewish version of the Hercules fable. That's oftentimes the way it gets read. The Bible says over and over and over again, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he fill in the blank. Samson is strong because God made him strong. And God made him strong for an incredibly specific purpose. And so the story keeps rolling on and it's almost time for Samson to get married and then chapter 14 verse 8 we read this. After some days he returned to take her. So there was a season of time between the arranging of the marriage and when the, the marriage actually happens. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So he's on his way to, to the wedding celebration. He sees the lion that he kills. He turns aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Verse 10, his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen, linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your, riddle, uh, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. And on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? 17, she wept before him the seven days of the, that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Okay, so... There's a whole lot going on in that passage of text. But all right, uh, the story starts out with Samson, the Nazarite from birth, touching a dead body. Yes, the dead line on the side of the road counts. 
All right? He, he touches the body. In fact, it says he scrapes honey out of the inside of it, which is a little weird, but hey, well, okay. All right. He scrapes some honey out of it and eats the honey, and then he gives some to his parents, but he doesn't tell his parents where the honey comes from. Why? Because he knows they're going to get mad about where it came from, right? Yeah. But the story keeps going. And in verse 10, they prepare the wedding feast. All right? Uh, again, we've talked about this a little bit before, but don't think what we normally think of in our modern times as, as a wedding. We talked before about how a wedding wasn't a ceremony, it was a consummation, but that doesn't mean there wasn't a reception. But their version of a reception was way bigger than ours because we're talking about a week-long feast. All right? So you had the consummation, and then you had a week-long, seven-day-long feast after that to celebrate that marriage. All right? And so whatever you think of when you think of wedding reception, way too small for what they're talking about. And I promise you, wine is a major part of the scenario. Those of you who know your Bible well know that Jesus, the very first miracle he did was what? Turning water into wine at a, partly, at a party exactly like this. It was a wedding feast right? A, a week-long affair where the wine is flowing. So what do we do with that? Well, the Bible doesn't actually say whether or not Samson participated in the drinking, but I mean, does anybody think that he didn't? <laughs> like, based on what else we know about Samson, like, is it really a stretch? So while it doesn't say explicitly, I think it's probably implied here. In fact, the, the Hebrew word in verse 10 for feast can sometimes be literally translated as a drinking party. And so in all likelihood, Samson drank wine. In all likelihood, Samson broke that part of the covenant too, that part of the vow. And as crazy as that part of the story is, from that moment on, Samson's life becomes the, one of the most overdramatic things I've ever heard. It's the stuff that Mexican telenovelas wish they could be. Like, he poses a riddle about the honey and the lion to the Philistine wedding party. He's got 30 guys there who are Philistines, family and friends of his new bride, and, and he poses them a riddle involving the lion. And the wager is 30 changes of clothing, right? And so, what happens? Well, the Philistines don't like being uh, outwitted by this lowly Israelite. And so instead of figuring it out, they instead threaten to kill Samson's new wife. Like burn her down. So she begs him. Relentlessly begs him. All week long. What a nice little honeymoon, right? He finally gives in on the seventh day. He tells her and she turns around and promptly tells everybody else, right? They answer the riddle. What's... What's stronger than a lion? What's sweeter than honey? And so Samson gets angry about all that. But now he also owes 30 pieces of clothing to these guys. So where's he going to get it? We didn't read that far in the story, but let me summarize it for you. Um, Samson goes and kills 30 Philistine men. He leaves the wedding party. He goes and finds 30 men, kills them all, takes their clothes, brings them back. Here's your stuff. Cute little children's story, right? And apparently he's gone for a while. We, the Bible doesn't say how long. It just says after a number of days. He's gone for a while, but while he's gone, for whatever length of time that, he, that it is that he's a, away, Samson's wife is given to another man. His father-in-law just gives his wife away. Cute little kid's story. 
Which, surprise, Samson doesn't respond too kindly to. And so what does he do? Well, in verse, chapter 15, verse 4, it says that he catches 300 foxes, ties them in pairs by the tail, attaches a torch to them, and sends them running through all the grain fields of the Philistines burning their crops down. Cute little children's bedtime story. The Philistines can't be outdone by Samson. They can't be bested by this guy, so they respond by having his wife and father-in-law executed. They burn him alive. Cute little children's bedtime story. And so Samson responds to that in verses 7 and 8 by killing everyone who had a part in that deal and then running off to live in a cave for a while. The Philistines can't be outdone by Samson, so they assemble an army and go after him. And the Israelites, who, remind you, are enslaved right now, they don't like the problems that the Samson character is creating for them. And so they assemble an army of their own, 3,000 men, the Bible tells us, and they go to Samson, and they plead with him to turn himself in. They bind him, they march him towards the Philistines, and when the Philistines attempt to capture Samson, verse 14, that familiar line, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the Bible says that Samson picks up a donkey's jawbone and kills a thousand of the Philistines. Cute little children's bedtime story. Chapter 15 closes out by telling us that the Philistines back off after that moment, because if this guy can handle that with a jawbone, what's he going to do with an army at his back? The Philistines back off in that moment and things settle down for the next 20 years. There's peace for about 20 years. What a pleasant little bedtime story. All right, children, off to bed now that we've had our Bible reading. If nothing else, Samson's story is a clear lesson in, the, in just how destructive a tit-for-tat life philosophy is, right? You just got to keep making it worse. But hey, I mean, Samson's story may start out pretty terrible, but it looks like it levels off, right? I mean, he's got these 20 years where things kind of calm down. I mean, Samson broke all the other pieces of his Nazarite vow, right? I mean, all throughout the earlier part of his life, he, he broke the vow about walking in holiness before the people. He broke the vow about drinking. He broke the vow about touching dead stuff. But at least he's avoided the haircut, right? And those of you who know Samson's story know that we finally set the scene for the most famous part of Samson's story. And even though we've been in question number two for a while now, <laughs> we are nowhere near done with it, are we? So let's see what it says. Judges 16. So about 20 years have passed since the donkey's jawbone incident. Things have been kind of leveled out. At least as far as we're told, Samson hasn't gotten in any trouble, right? All right? Uh, but chapter 16 opens up after these 20 years with Samson going someplace he shouldn't have gone, visiting a prostitute while he's there, the people in that town wanting to capture him, and Samson escaping yet again. All right? So that's how chapter 16 opens up. And, uh, but after that, well, he wants to marry a nice little Philistine girl named Delilah. And in verse 4, we read this. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, 
and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Okay, so Samson wants to be with Delilah, and Delilah wants to be with all the cash that her people are promising her, right? And so she presses Samson for his secret. Hey, tell me where your great strength lies. And he gives her this line about the seven fresh bowstrings. He's toying with her. He lies to her. We can say it that way. He lies to Delilah. Now, there's a very important question that we need to answer that's going to directly affect how we read the rest of the story, and it's this. What is the source of Samson's strength? God is. Now, you're sitting under what I think is pretty solid Bible teaching. We've already talked about this somewhat over, throughout the course of the series and even this, this morning. But if we were to walk into half a dozen other churches or, or, or pick up any random children's Bible, what is it going to tell you is the source of Samson's strength? His hair. But it's not his hair. That's the way the story often gets told, but there's absolutely nothing up to this point in the story that would suggest that it's Samson's hair that is the source of his strength. His hair is a part of a much larger vow before God to walk in holiness before the people, right? It's, a, it's a, an aesthetic thing that's supposed to identify him as a Nazarite. It's not the source of his strength. So who, or, who is the source of his strength? God is, right? The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson is the line you see over and over and over again in Samson's story. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. Samson's hair is nothing more than a part of his commitment before God to be holy. So before we get too deep into the story, we need to lock down the idea that it really doesn't matter what else comes out of Samson's mouth. If it's not accompanied with the phrase, the Lord my God gives me strength, he's not giving credit where credit is actually due, is he? So they're all lies. So Samson gives her this nonsense line about bowstrings, right? Seven bowstrings that have never been dried. So let's see how that plays out. Verse 8. Then the Lord of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. And now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Verse 10, I think, is great. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. Verse 11, he said to her, If they bind me with seven new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the, with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And so while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. 
Verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all of his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Okay, so the story ramps up. You got new bowstrings that have never been dried. Delilah sets a trap, and what happens? Samson wins the day. Delilah presses him again. This time it's new ropes that have never been used before. She sets a trap. Whether he's asleep or not, he, all of a sudden Samson's tied up. Men come in, try to attack him. Samson wins the day. Delilah presses him again. This time, well, if you weave my hair in a certain way. Notice, by the way, it's taking a step closer to the truth here. Wakes up. Samson wins the day. Delilah keeps on him. And the text actually says that she nagged him about it so much that he finally gave in and told her. He tells her about his hair. Again, the hair is not inherently powerful, right? His hair is hair. But it's a sign of something much bigger, right? It's a part of a larger vow to God. And God has chosen to continue to empower Samson, even though he's broken every other piece of this vow already. Even though Samson has willingly, even blatantly ignored over and over again other pieces of this vow, God has continued to bless Samson. So what's going on here? Three times in a row now, Samson tells this girl, how to defeat him, and then all of a sudden that just kind of magically happens. And so the fourth time rolls around, and either A, either A, Samson is dumb enough to believe that it won't happen this time, or B, Samson knows that it's about to happen, but he's arrogant enough to believe that God will continue to empower him despite him breaking his vow yet again. Listen, Samson is a dummy, but I don't think he's that big of a dummy. Samson knows what he's doing. Neither of those options are positive scenarios, but Samson's not a complete idiot. So we're really only left with option B here, aren't we? Samson believes that he can go ahead and just break his vow again and everything's going to be fine. Samson has spent his entire life brazenly ignoring just about everything God has called him to do to walk in holiness before him and the people and the impression I'm left with in this story is that he thinks it's going to happen again. It was right in Samson's eyes, we could say. Like so many other times before this, he thinks that he can continue to walk in blatant sin and everything will just be all right. Don't worry, God will continue to bless. Or even more, I don't need God, I got my own strength. Samson is a man who desperately needs to be redeemed, isn't he? I mean, he? He doesn't see it yet. But I hope we do. Samson is a man who desperately needs to be redeemed, but thanks be to God, his God is in fact very much a redemption story, isn't it? And so let's see how he does that in the next verse. Verse 
18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. Verse 20, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. So how in the world did God redeem him? Well, for starters, by breaking him. And and I, I get it. Most people would not include that in the part, the redemption section of the story, would they? Well, isn't that still part of Samson's downfall? God would not allow Samson to continue to walk in sin before him. God is the one who gave strength, and God is the one who took it away. And verse 20 tells us that the Lord left him. In fact, the, the most terrifying part of that is that he didn't even notice that the Lord left him. He was so calloused by his sin that he doesn't even know the difference, the Bible tells us. So the Philistines charge in, he pops up like nothing's different, and soon learns that things have in fact changed, right? They capture him, they gouge out his eyes, put him to work driving a grain press down at the mill. Something that would have been common for prisoners in that part of the world in those days. He's a lowly prisoner. And God used every second of it to humble him. God brought Samson low before him. In his grace, he would not allow Samson to continue to exalt himself in his sin, and so he ripped it all out of his hands. He took it from him. God begins to redeem Samson by breaking him. But we stopped at verse 21. Look at verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaped. Yes, God humbled him, But that is not the end of Samson's story. It's not the end. Yes, God humbled him, but God did not simply do so to assert his authority over Samson. He did not do so simply to to show Samson who the real boss around town was. Hear me, beloved. That is not the purpose for which our God humbles his people ever It is not why God humbles us. It's never to assert his dominance or assert his authority. The arm of the Lord is not too short to redeem Samson here. And it's the humbling of Samson which brings him into that redemption. It's the humbling of Samson which brings him to that. He took everything away from Samson, not to be vindictive or punitive towards him, but for the purpose of showing Samson exactly where true strength actually comes from. He took away everything Samson could claim for himself and exalt himself with and made him utterly dependent on God alone. God will most assuredly wound his people for the purpose of getting their attention. If you've never walked in that, just wait. 
God will wound his people for the purpose of getting their attention. And it is his great love for you that produces his discipline for you. It's his love, not his wrath, not his anger. So if you're in Samson's shoes today, if you're in Samson's shoes today, guilty of sin and wallowing in the consequences of that sin, it's not God's anger towards you that has brought that about. It is his immeasurable love towards you. It is his fatherly affection and end game concern for you that has brought that about. Because he's leading you somewhere. God begins to redeem Samson by breaking him. That's not all he does. He also redeems Samson by vindicating him. By vindicating him. After a while, the story keeps going, and 3,000 Philistine leaders, generals and military-type figures, politicians, they're gathering together and worshiping together in the temple of Dagon, a false god of the Philistines and some other nations in that area. And the story plays out that they want to have a little sport with Samson. Right? They want to mock him. And so they trot him out, and they attach him. Uh, Samson asks to be, and they allow it, but they attach him to, to two central support pillars for this temple, this giant room filled with thousands of people. And in verse 28, we read this. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once. Oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then after that, the Bible says that Samson summoned all his strength. He leaned against the two posts, knocked them down, and brought the temple down with it, killing himself and everybody in the room. The Bible also says that in that moment, Samson killed more Philistines than he ever did while he was alive. So why did God raise up Samson? He raised him up to be a judge, right? Part of his job, not all of it, part of his job was to bring judgment on the Philistines, right? It seems like God let him finish his work. It wasn't all of his job, but part of his job was to bring judgment on the wicked nation enslaving God's people, and God allowed him to finish the job. So whether or not you think that's an interesting story, Samson does seem to get a little bit of vindication. God lets him do it. God didn't have to give him strength in this moment, but God allows him to be strong yet once more time. He kills everybody there. But the question remains, how in the world is the gospel preached through Samson's story? I mean, that's kind of a weird story to, to preach the gospel through, right? Get your eyes gouged out. Beg God for one last feat of strength. Kill yourself and everybody else. How do you preach the gospel out of that? And the answer is that Samson is the worst Nazarite ever. The worst Nazarite. Do you, do you remember who the Nazarites were supposed to be? Forget about the vow for a second. Forget about all the, the stuff we know about who they were supposed to be. What, are the, what was their purpose? Why did God set them apart all the way back in number six? They were to be holy before God and holy before God's people. To, to walk as leaders for God's people in a holiness so that they would see the holiness of their God. Right? That was the 
purpose of the Nazarites. They were a special group of people set apart for a holy and special purpose. And literally the most famous Nazarite we know of in the Bible. I promise you, you can't, you can't remember the name of a single other Nazarite. Right? The Nazarite that you think of when you think of the Nazarites. Samson, that guy, was the worst Nazarite ever. The guy who was called to be holy and blameless, set apart from his people for the purpose of leading his people, was probably the most sinful person in the land of Israel at that time. He failed in every way. And while Jesus was no Nazarite, while he never made a vow to abstain from specific things for the purpose of piousness, oh, hear me, church, he absolutely took up the mantle of walking in holiness before God and before the people. He did so willingly. He did so effectually. Samson was given the title, the earthly title of holy, even before he was born, and he failed to live that out. But Jesus, who is holy from all of eternity, uh, stepped down from his throne, put on flesh and dwelt among us, and then walked in that holiness to perfection to the end. Samson, died as a sinful man who took some of his enemies with him on the way. But Jesus, the completely sinless God-man, died taking upon himself the sins of his enemies so that those enemies would be declared righteous before him too. They are worlds apart. And that's how the gospel is preached through the life of Samson. Jesus walked in perfection, the holiness that Samson was called to but never even seemed to care about. And while Samson the judge was supposed to set his people free from slavery, the very next verse of the book of Judges sees this story repeat itself yet again. The nation of Israel needed a better judge. They needed a much, much better judge. And so we put in the work this morning and we positioned ourselves to answer our big question for the day, haven't we? How does the story of Samson tell us about the much bigger and much more beautiful story of God? And the answer is that God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that God raised up Samson to be the shadow of a far more perfect Samson to come in Jesus. God raised up the mighty strong man of the book of Judges to be a shadow of a far more perfect strong man who is faithfully strong and the only thing that mattered on an eternal level. This is the story of God. The story of God is no small deal. It's the greatest action-adventure drama the world will ever know. It's in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason. That his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you press into God, right? You do that by pressing into his word, man. Consider, just consider, starting in the book of Judges. It's a bunch of little stories. You can get through them real quick. But their purpose is to teach you about who he is. And he reveals himself even in the story of Samson. We can take another step into this, right? Maybe Samson's story is a lot like yours. Maybe you've got some great tales of God did this and God did that and, and God used me in this way and that way. But you've also got some pet sins in your heart and in life. You think that, well, God hadn't done anything about them yet, so why would he do anything about them now? 
Oh, beloved, don't think that way. Today's a good day to repent and to walk in obedience. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that's helpful for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I say it every week. I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. We want you to, to keep sticking around and keep asking questions and keep pressing in. And, and listen, we think that God eventually is gonna get you. But maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day that you want to respond yourself. And you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. You don't need the story of Samson. You need the Jesus behind the story of Samson. You do that by repenting of your sin and following Jesus as Lord, believing he and he alone is capable of bringing you salvation. Forget about your strength. It ain't good enough. Trust Jesus. So listen, maybe today's the day you want to take that step of walking with him. And listen, so we're, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up here, myself included, to, to talk and pray with you. Man, I'd love to walk you through what that looks like. It's a life that is indescribable. It's costly. Oh, but indescribable. So if you're here today and you want to, you want to make that call, make that decision, you come see me. But let's all pray and respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the story of Samson. God, I'm far more like Samson than I wish to admit in front of people. I can rattle off issue after issue, sin after sin. I've kept them as pets, tried to manage them, justified them. You've been gracious for longer than I deserve. And you may yet be gracious still. God, I don't want a Samson-like wake-up call. I want to wake up long before that. Call me to repentance. Help me see my folly. Draw me to yourself. And break me if necessary. God, you are good to us. You are far more good to us than we deserve. God, for those in here who don't know you, would you draw us to yourself this morning? Would you open eyes to see you? Humble us before you. Call us to repentance, but give us grace as well. You are good. In your name we pray. Amen.